Good morning. morning. Welcome to River Rock Bible Church. Uh, We're so glad that you're here this morning, and uh, it's uh, it's really good to be here this morning. As I was uh, waiting for everyone to arrive, I was out front talking with a a friend who said, "Hey, how are you doing this morning?" And I said, "Well, to be honest, my allergies are getting to me. My eyes are burning. I'm a little bit tired. I had a long day yesterday, and on top of that, I'm sore." Uh, pulled a muscle on Friday, strained my hip flexor, so every th- movement that I make just hurts. And, uh, you know, f- I sat here thinking about that as we worshiped and about that response. And part of me was a little disappointed that I just kind of unloaded everything on someone who asked a simple question. The other part of me was relieved that I felt like I could be honest with my friends here at River Rock Bible Church and, and tell them what's going on in my life and where I'm struggling and where I'm hurting. And as we worshiped and as I thought about that, it, it made me wonder, how are you doing? How are you doing this morning? Um, how is your marriage? How is your relationship with your kids? How are things at work? What struggles have you brought in here this morning with you? How are you doing? As we go through the book of Mark, we've been kind of asking ourselves questions about, the main question we've asked is, what would it look like if we lived more like Jesus? What would, we look, what would it look like if we lived more like Jesus? How would that affect our character? How would that change the choices that we make or the things that we value? And we've been going through this study and we've been trying to figure out what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus, to live as Jesus lived. And I wondered this week, where have you come up against something that Jesus says and it doesn't match up with what you want to do? How have you gone through that this week? How have you gone through that in the past few weeks as we've studied the life of Jesus? And I wonder if, if you're beginning to be transformed by his word as we read it together or are there still places in your, in your life where selfishness may be winning out? I wish I could say every year of my life had been transformed and there were no areas of selfishness, but I know that's not true. Last week, I don't know about you, but the passage that we read was one of the most challenging passages to me. Uh, it's, it's been one of the most challenging passages to me for a long time. Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, if you want to be great, if anyone of you wants to be great, you must serve all the others. If you want to be first, you must be the servant, the slave of all. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And to be honest, that is a hard thing to do. That is a hard thing to do. And in fact, uh, I don't know if God ever does this to you, but when he has a lesson for you to learn, he has you learn it kind of in a hard way, kind of really in your face. And this past week, I, I had come home from work been a long day, been trying to get a bunch of stuff done, follow up from Easter and all this, and I was just tired. And I, I don't know about you guys, but when I come home from work, the last thing I want to do is serve someone else. 
I want some time to just sit on the couch and be served. Please tell me I'm not the only one. Am I the only one? Okay, good. I'm not. I just want to be there on the couch. I just want to be served. I don't want to, I don't want to listen to kids fighting. I don't want to be asked questions. I just want to sit there. And, uh, and I had this experience this past week where God really got my attention. I was sitting there on the coffee table playing my guitar. The kids were sitting listening. They love to they go with the, get their play guitars, and they, we pretend, and we have a good time. And Amanda's taking a box out to the garage, and she comes in, and she goes, there's a spider in the garage. Um, she wasn't that calm. Don't get me wrong. She's like, there's a spider. I was like, great, go kill it. And, uh, you know, this is funny to me that, that when it's time to wash the dishes, do the laundry, vacuum the house, there's no such thing as men's jobs and women's jobs, right? You can't say that because then you get in trouble. You can't say that's a woman's job because then you sleep on the couch. But as soon as there's a spider to be killed, it's a man's job, right? And so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, all I want to do is relax. I'm enjoying my kids right now. Nobody's fighting. Nobody's crying. This is great. And you want me to stop what I'm doing and go kill a, a stinking spider, like, drop another box on it. It'll be fine. And uh, so I get up, and, and I go, and I help her find the spray, and I, I spray the spider and kill it. And uh, it was in that moment as I was walking back to get my guitar that it was like God just slaps you upside the head, and he says, Chuck, you still don't get it, do you? You still don't get what it means to serve others. It's not just up front. It's not just at the church. I want you to serve your wife. I want you to serve your kids. And And this is what I came away with. It was as if God said to me, you want all the blessing of being my disciple with none of the obedience. And I thought, you're right. That's exactly what I want. (laughs) I want all the blessing without having to make any of the sacrifice of obedience. And then I had this thought. And I believe this was from God as he was speaking to me that the obedience is the blessing. When are you going to see that? That the true blessing comes in the obedience, the obeying. And so I wonder this week, how has God challenged you? How has he shaped you as we, as we think back to Mark chapter 10? Because I believe that if you want to grow, if you want to grow in Christ, then at some point you have to decide to give your life to others. You have to understand that others are more important than the things that you want. And that's a hard thing to learn. That's a very, very difficult thing. And um, When we started this process, we said that we were going to spend five minutes a day when we started the book of Mark. Five minutes a day just engaging in the Word of God. We have a reading plan. It's online. We have a couple in the back. If you're joining us for the first time or first time in a long time and you haven't been keeping up, that's okay. Jump right in in Mark chapter 11 because I believe that God has something He wants to say to you. He wants to challenge you in some area of your life. God wants to speak to you through His Word. So I encourage you to, to jump in. And as you go through, you're going to find, just as I did this last week, that you know, there, are, there are times when God just wants to turn your life upside down. He just wants to change everything that you thought you knew. And everything that you thought was right, He wants to just grab your attention and say, no, look at it again. Go back to my word and read it again. And uh, this morning we're going to come to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we begin with Jesus entering the temple, or entering Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday. And everything that has happened from Mark chapter 1 all the way to Mark chapter 10 has been leading up to Jesus entering into Jerusalem. The last few chapters, back in chapter 8, Jesus first tells his disciples, we're going to go, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities, and they're going to kill me. 
But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And then last week, for the very first time, he says, here's why I'm going to be killed and rise again on the third day. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. It's to pay the ransom so that you can have relationship with God and so that all people can have relationship with God. And so there were times in Jesus' ministry leading up to this when he would perform a miracle and someone would recognize, hey, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And he would say, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. It's not time yet. And now what we're going to find is after Jesus has entered in Jerusalem, people are putting down palm branches. They're laying down their cloaks. They're welcoming him as a conquering king, as a victorious king who's coming to take the throne. They welcome him. And what we're going to see in this chapter, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning is that all this time that Jesus is saying, don't say anything, he's trying to keep things quiet. He's getting ready to light a match and set this whole thing on fire. And we pick this up in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. It says this, And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and this is not by mistake. This is at the height of the Passover festival, and Jesus knows this. There are many people around. People have heard of his teaching. They know who he is. They've welcomed him. And he comes in, and something about Jerusalem is that uh, by today's standards, it was kind of a small to medium-sized town. It was about 50,000 people, about the size of Georgetown. But during Passover, scholars believe that uh, any given time, it would grow from 150,000 up to half a million people. So the city is busy. Things are taking place. And it says he goes into the temple complex. Passover is the biggest time of the year in the Jewish calendar. And so it would have been all the people there going to the temple complex to worship. And Jesus enters in. And he looks around. And what you've got to know is what's coming next is Jesus is about the next day. He's about to clear the temple. He's going to cleanse the temple. And what we don't understand, what I don't really understand sometimes is, okay, so why does Jesus walk in? And he looks around and he says, you know what? This can wait till tomorrow. Make no mistake, what Jesus saw on that first day when he entered the temple complex made him just as angry as what he saw the next day when he starts turning over tables. But for whatever reason, Jesus looks at his sundial or whatever he's wearing and he says, this can wait. This can wait. Jesus is angry. Make no mistake about that. Jesus is angry, but it's a controlled anger. It's an anger that didn't cause him to sin. We're going to talk a little bit more that, about that in a second. But let's go on in verse 12. It says this, The next day, when they came out from Bethany, so they go back to Bethany, they go out of the city, they stay in a small town nearby, and they're coming back to the temple. It says, The next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now this to me is kind of crazy. And I'm a, I imagine the disciples walking along with Jesus and all of a sudden Jesus starts talking to a tree and they're thinking, okay, he's finally lost it. He didn't eat breakfast and now he's angry at this tree. And it's your fault, guy. You didn't eat breakfast. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out what's going on. And it... It blows my mind because when I first read that, it says it wasn't the season for figs. So why in the world would Jesus expect figs when it's not the season? The disciples are probably a little bit confused at this point. 
As I studied it this week, I looked into a number of commentaries, I looked at a number of um, Bible study resources, and they were absolutely no help whatsoever. So I, I wanted an answer to this. Why would Jesus expect figs when it's not the season for figs? It's clearly not the season for figs. And so I kind of got a, a second master's degree in horticulture this week as I read up about fig trees, because I was curious, I wanted to know. And here's what I found that figs, fig trees, actually produce a crop twice a year. The first crop comes just after the leaves have come out. And so you get this big, beautiful plant like this with these big, giant leaves that provide a lot of shade. That's kind of a small tree. But as you can see, you have the big leaves, but you can't really tell if there's any fruit on it, so you've got to get up close. And when you get up close during the first crop, what you find are these little marble-sized, quarter-sized pieces of fruit. Now, this is not the main crop. This is what's called the breba crop, right? It's a smaller crop. These aren't very sweet and and sticky like the normal figs that we normally eat, you know, like that's inside of a fig newton. These are a little bit more acidic. Um, They're not that great to eat, but if you're hungry first thing in the morning and you've skipped breakfast, then it'll do, right? You can grab a handful of these and it'll fill you up. It'll keep you going. And Jesus comes over and he looks And it's about this time of year, about April, March, when the fig trees produce this breva crop. And he sees that there's no, not even the small, not even the small figs, not even the little crop. All there are are these big leaves. And he knows that if there's not even this breva crop, then come fall, there's not ever going to be the full crop of figs. And so he curses the tree. And this is Uh, one of only two miracles where Jesus' miracles leads to destruction. One is when he casts out the demons of legion and they go into the pigs and the pigs run off the cliff. This is the only one where Jesus himself causes death. It's the only miracle. And what we learn from this is that Jesus cares about fruit. Jesus cares about fruit in our lives. And Jesus, I I wondered as I read this story, why, why would he say all this stuff out loud? Like he's Jesus. He knows things. He probably didn't even have to walk over to the tree to know that it didn't have fruit. He is God. He could have seen these things. And I think the reason Jesus does this is for the sake of his disciples. Because he's teaching them a lesson. Remember, he's going to the temple complex and he's getting ready to clear out the temple. And here's what we see is that Jesus is making this point. He's saying that the fruitlessness of this tree represents the fruitlessness of the nation of Israel and their religion, right? Their quote-unquote religion, their practices. And he says, not only that, but this also represents the fruitlessness in the life of my disciples. Jesus expects his disciples to bear fruit. Spiritual fruit is evidence that God is at work. Spiritual fruit is not evidence of the fact that you attend church on Sunday morning. Spiritual fruit is not even evidence of the fact that at one time you had a relationship with God or, or perhaps that at one time you read scripture every day. Spiritual fruit is evidence of the fact that you are allowing God to work in your life day by day. Day by day. And I, as I thought about that, I thought about our lives. And when is it that our spiritual fruit shows? And I, I thought of this question, and the question is this, when... Are you most likely to take offense? When are you most likely to take offense, to recoil, to to show who you really are? Because I believe it's when you're offended, it's when you're offended that 
people really see whether or not you have big, beautiful leaves or you have spiritual fruit. Because I'm patient until I have to wait. Right? I'm kind to my friends. But it's not until I'm faced with an enemy that you find out how kind I truly am. I think all of us are that way, right? We're all patient until that person cuts in front of us at the supermarket. And then we find out whether or not we truly have the spiritual fruit. So where in your life are you most likely to take offense? I hope this is something that you think about this week, that, uh, that you will examine that in your life. And think about a time that you've most recently been offended. And what was my response? Did I show spiritual fruit? Or did I show that I only have big, beautiful leaves and no fr- fruit produced in that area of my life? It goes on, and we read this. Verse 15. It says, they came to Jerusalem and he went to the temple complex and he began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then he said to the chief priests and the scribes, heard, heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. And so we have here Jesus, after he's just taught this lesson to his disciples, that I care about fruit. I don't care about the big, beautiful leaves that that are just outward signs of religion. What I care about in your life is spiritual fruit. And now he shows up at the temple. And I think Mark has put this together for a reason. And this happens in this order for a reason. Jesus shows up at the temple and he sees the money changers. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in Sunday school, we had felt board Jesus. Does anybody remember felt board Jesus? Blonde hair, blue eye, straight hair, you know, nice trim beard. Everybody had felt board Jesus. And for me growing up, it was difficult to imagine that Jesus coming into the temple and turning over tables. And John tells us that Jesus sat there and as he sat there letting his... his Trying to, I think he was probably trying to figure out what do I do here and he's sitting there and he comes and he braids together a whip out of some rope. This was not just a fly off the handle moment. Remember Jesus had been there the day before and the things that he saw the day before made him just as angry as they do today. And so Jesus begins turning over the tables because he's angry. Why is he angry? Jesus' anger is directed at those at fruitless people who kept others from coming to God. Now, how is it that these fruitless people kept others coming from God? Well, in those days, especially at Passover, when people would come to the temple, many of them would have traveled a number of miles. They would have traveled from a long way. And so when they get to the temple and it's time to make their sacrifice, they wouldn't bring their livestock with them. They would have to purchase their livestock when they get to Jerusalem. And so they get to the temple and and Jesus at this point is in the outer court This is the place where everyone could go. Didn't matter if you were Jew, Gentile, male, female. This was the court for everyone. And this is where Jesus is. And he sees this taking place. He sees the buying and selling of these animals. And it's not just that they were buying and selling them. No, it was that they were price gouging. Right? They had jacked up the price because they knew that these people coming from hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles away, would have to pay the price to get the sacrifice. They would have to pay that price. 
And not only that, the only money that was accepted in the temple court was temple money. So if you come from Egypt or Babylon or some other area of the world and you've got Roman currency, your only option is to change that money into the temple currency. Has anybody ever traveled overseas? Anybody ever traveled overseas? One thing that I remember is uh, when my wife and I went to Russia and uh, we had to exchange our money, what they said, do not exchange your money at the airport. Why? Because they're going to rip you off, right? They know when you're at the airport, it's like when you, when you take your car back, if you've ever rented a car, you don't fill up at the gas station next to the airport. It's going to be two times the amount that it would be anywhere else. And so the people there are ripping off these people who are just coming trying to worship God. And it gets even worse than that because the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, they're all in it together. See, the way it worked is you can sell things in the temple, but you're going to give us a portion of the profit. It's called profit sharing. So Jesus sees this, and he sees the spiritual leaders, the ones who should have been bearing the fruit, and he sees that they're fruitless. And not only are they fruitless, but because of their fruitlessness, they are keeping others from coming to God. Now, uh, imagine this outer court scene. It would be like uh, Georgetown, Texas, or Austin, Texas, if you combine Canton and South by Southwest at the same time, and all these people coming together. If you've, if you've ever been to one of those places... I, I do not like lots of people around me. I like my personal bubble, right? And it, it's like going to one of these events where there's just people everywhere. And Jesus is turning over the tables, tables and he's driving people out. And it says that he would not permit them to come back in. But when he leaves, the very next day, they come back and they set up shop. And we see Jesus expressing his anger at these fruitless people who are keeping others from coming to God. Now, here's something that, that I think is very important for us to understand about righteous indignation, about Jesus' righteous anger. Number one, he did not sin in his anger. Jesus did not sin in his anger. And here's, here's the special thing about righteous indignation and when we get angry. Jesus' anger was directed at those who were keeping others from coming to God. He was not angry because he had been offended. He was angry on behalf of someone else. Righteous anger is always combined with compassion. Always. Always combined with compassion. It had nothing to do with Jesus being offended. It had everything to do with Jesus feeling compassion for those who were being kept from their relationship with God. And his anger was directed at those who were preventing them from worshiping God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I wonder... I wonder, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Is it internal? Is it something focused on the inside? Or when you find yourself getting angry, is it focused on the outside? Are you angry at the things that God is angry about? Or are you angry because you have been hurt? You've been offended. What makes you angry? Jesus then leaves the temple and heads back to Bethany and then it we read this in verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God, I assure you. If anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all things, 
all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. Now, as we've gone through, I mentioned early on in this message that there are some passages of Scripture that you can just pick up and read and you can get it. And then there are some passages that are very difficult to understand. And for me, this is one of those passages. Right? I think we all have passages of Scripture that we're not going to understand on this side of heaven. And it's not until we get up to heaven with our laundry list of questions for God that, that we'll truly understand. And this is a very, very difficult passage to understand. And I've, I wrestled with it all week long. I wrestled with it all week on long because what does it mean that we can pray for something and if we believe we'll receive it or believe that you already have received it let me ask you this how many of you have prayed for something and didn't get it raise your hand wave it around look around it's almost all of us we've all prayed for something and get didn't get it so when we come to a passage like this how do we how do we reconcile that with our experience and I want to remind you of our very first Bible reading principle that we talked about a few, uh, in our very first message here, which is don't make it say something it isn't saying. Don't make it say something it isn't saying. And so we have to really examine this passage when we come to it and try to dig in and figure out what is it saying. Because when you read that if you, if you pray believing sincerely, then whatever you ask God will give to you, then you walk away with the expectation that, okay, if I pray hard enough, that God is going to bend his will to mine, and I'm going to get what I want. Like, God owes it to me if I pray. Well, that's not praying in faith, right? That's having faith in faith, or having faith in prayer, not having faith in God. And so what do we do with this passage? And I think there's, there's a number of options, but there's really two approaches to this passage. One is for us to say, God, you must not be who you say that you are. God, you must not be who I thought you were, right? That's one way to look at it because when I ask for something and I don't get it, you don't give it to me, right? You're not giving it to me. So this verse tells me if I ask for it, I get it. And I didn't get what I wanted. So you must not be that way. God, your word must be wrong, right? But we know from other scripture, not just this one passage, we know from other scripture that there are a number of reasons why God doesn't answer our prayer. And let me be very clear about this. Um, when I say God doesn't answer our prayer, what I mean is God doesn't answer the prayer the way we want because God always answers prayer. He either says yes, no, or wait, right? And so sometimes that no or wait, we feel like, well, God didn't answer. But no, God always answers prayer. Not always the way that we want, but God always answers. And there's a number of reasons why we may be praying for something and feel like God is not answering. And some of those we read that, number one, what we're praying may not be in line with God's will. We may be asking for something outside of his will. We may, be, we may have unconfessed sin in our lives that is hindering our relationship with God, and God is trying to draw our attention to that unconfessed sin. That's not very popular to say, but that's very true. James tells us that we, we may not receive what we're asking for because we never really ask. Right? He says you have not because you ask not. And then we have passages like this that tell us we may not be receiving because there's some unforgiveness in our lives. 
So we have this option when we come to this passage, are we going to look at it and say, God, you're not who you say you are because you don't do what I want you to do, or, or we can approach it in this way. We can say, we can say, this may not mean, this probably doesn't mean what I think it means. Or perhaps this doesn't mean what I want it to mean. This doesn't mean what I want it to mean. Because to me, that seems like a great thing. That I, if I just pray hard enough and believe enough that God will give me whatever I want. But maybe this passage doesn't mean what I think it means. And so as I, as I tried to understand this passage this week, I really just asked God, Lord, get rid of everything that I think I know about this passage and make room for the truth. And that is one of the hardest things um, that I think anyone can ever pray is, Lord, get rid of everything that I think I know and make room for the truth in my life and reveal the truth to me. And as I studied, things begin to come, become a little bit more and more clear. And uh, what I think we have going on here is that um, Jesus says, he begins by talking about um, he says, have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, so let's talk about this mountain. Remember where Jesus was the day before. Remember what the disciples are probably looking at in a distance. This mountain could be a reference to the temple mountain. Remember the temple was the place where they had just been, where the disciples had seen the big beautiful leaves, but a fruitless religion. And Jesus is saying, look, if you have faith in God, which means you have faith in me as your Savior, then you can say to this fruitless religion, away. I don't need you. Go cast yourself in the sea. Right? We also know from the Old Testament that the mountain often symbolizes something that's just standing in the way. It's an obstacle to get around. So it may not be specifically the temple mount where Jesus is saying, look, you have this fruitless religion set up on this mountain, and I want you to tell that mountain to go cast itself in the sea because your faith is not in your religion. Your faith is in me. Your faith is in God. Or it could be that there is something in your life, some obstacle that is in your way that seems immovable. Maybe there's a sin that you're struggling with. Maybe there's something that's just keeping you from your relationship with God. And he says, if you ask for that to be removed, it will be removed and you'll be able to have that relationship with God. And then I think he gives us an example when he talks about forgiveness. And I, I struggled with this all week long. What is the significance of fruitlessness and fruitfulness and effective prayer and forgiveness? What do these things have to do with one another? And as I started reading about this, uh, I, I began to understand that when it says forgive, when it says to forgive others and your Father will forgive you, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's forgiveness of you is dependent on your forgiveness of others, right? What it does mean is that those who have been forgiven by God will show that forgiveness, the fruit of that forgiveness, the evidence of that forgiveness in their ability to forgive others when they have been wronged, when they have been offended. They will show that spiritual fruit. They will show that I have been changed. I have experienced forgiveness, and this is my demonstration of that as I forgive you. It's not easy for us, and I, I think too often, even as believers, we hold grudges against someone when we're offended. We want to hold on to that grudge, and we don't want to 
offer that forgiveness. And then we begin to pray th- for things and we wonder, why am I not receiving what I'm praying for? Why, why does it feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? Perhaps it's because there's some unforgiveness in our lives that are keeping us from having that relationship with God the way he intended. Forgiveness of others is evidence of our fruit. It's evidence that God is at work in our lives. It is not the basis for God working in our lives. Does that make sense? So we have this thing that, that Peter says at the beginning. It's, it says Peter sees the tree and he remembers what Jesus said the day before. And he says, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And I think that Jesus is a little bit caught off guard that he would be surprised. And he kind of replies in his reply, and I, I think what he's saying is, Peter, do you still not get it? Do you still not understand that the spiritual is always greater than the material? Do you still not understand that the, that the eternal is greater than the temporal? That the eternal is greater than the temporal? And, and then he goes into this dialogue about forgiveness, and I, I think this is part of the reason. Because those with an eternal perspective are bearing evidence of spiritual fruit. An eternal perspective is evidence of eternal fruit. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you, you are so concerned with the things of this world still. Your mind is still on the things of this world. I want you to have an eternal perspective. You're concerned with the things of this world. And the way that you show that is the way that you pray. When you pray for the things of this world, you're showing a temporal concern. I want you to have an eternal concern. I want you to have that eternal perspective. And I I think that when we have that eternal perspective, we pray for what God wants. We pray in line with what he wants. And, And I think that it's when we do that that there's no obstacle that could possibly stand in our way when we have that perspective because we will see it. We will ask God to remove it and he will listen. And I think this is closely tied to our, forg- to our forgiveness of others. Because if you have an eternal perspective, if you have the mindset that God wants you to have and you're bearing that spiritual fruit, I believe that when someone wrongs you, what this passage is saying is that you'll be able to look beyond that. You'll be able to say, this is temporal. This doesn't matter. This is such a small thing. Let me look beyond this to eternity. I don't want to hold on to this. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. Forgiveness is not only evidence of spiritual fruit, it's, I think, evidence of that eternal perspective. It's evidence of that eternal perspective. Now my question to you is, where is fruit not growing in your life? As you press up against the things of this world, as you press up against the challenges, as people challenge you, maybe at school, at work, in your neighborhood, there's someone who's challenged you in some way. What comes out? Do you demonstrate big, beautiful leaves or do you demonstrate fruit? Fruit demonstrated by a life that is being changed by God. When someone wrongs you, are you able to forgive them? Where are you not showing fruit in your life? I hope as we uh, come to our time for take two that everyone in here would, would just spend these next two minutes thinking and asking God, where am I not bearing fruit? Would you show me? Lord, would you, would you help me to understand? God, would you 
remove what I think I know and make room for the truth of your word. Take two right now. Pray with me. Father, our prayer, our desire is that you would give us an eternal perspective, that we would be relying on you and on your word day by day, that when we come up against enemies, when we come up against the things that make us angry, Lord, that we would bear spiritual fruit, that we would show ourselves to be fruitful people who are following you. Father, I ask throughout this week that you would just show us where in our lives are we harboring a spirit of unforgiveness? Where in our lives are we unjustly angry? Where are we holding back from you? Would you reveal that to us and show us how we might bear fruit as we dig into your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.